You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The Pomp and Circumstance Marches, full title, Pomp and Circumstance Military Marches, are a series of five or six marches for orchestra composed by Sir Edward Elgar. The first four were published between 1901 and 1907, when Elgar was in his 40s. The fifth was published in 1930, a few years before his death. And a sixth, compiled posthumously from sketches, was published in 1956 and in 2005 to 2006. They include some of Elgar's best-known compositions. The title is taken from Act 3, Scene 3 of Shakespeare's Othello. Farewell the neighing steed and the shrill trump, the spirit-stirring drum, fair piercing fife, the royal banner and all quality, pride, pomp and circumstance of glorious war. But also on the score of the first march, Elgar set as a motto for the whole set of marches a verse from Lord de Tabley's poem, The March of Glory, which, as quoted by Elgar's biographer Basil Maine, begins, Like a proud music that draws men on to die, madly upon the spears in martial ecstasy, a measure that sets heaven in all their veins, and iron in their hands. I hear the nation march beneath her ensign as an eagle's wing, o'er shield and sheeted targ, the banners of my faith most gaily swing, moving to victory with solemn noise, with worship and with conquest and the voice of myriads. Proclaiming the show of things, Maine's quotation marks, the naive assumption that the splendid show of military pageantry, pomp, has no connection with the drabness and terror, circumstance, of actual warfare. The first four marches were all written before the events of World War I shattered that belief, and the styles in which wars were written about spurned the false romance of the battle song. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. That was the first several paragraphs of the Wikipedia article for Pump and Circumstance Marches. If you didn't catch yesterday's episode on the nature of what passes for good manners, you can go back and listen to that one either before or after you listen to this one, since you've already started and you're already here, you might as well listen to this one. But if you want to know part of what I am jumping off from, it is this topic of good manners. And just to unpack a little bit for you how it is that my process goes, I am recording this episode on Friday, March 11th, 2022, it is just almost 7 a.m., which is late for me. Usually I start recording earlier so as to get ahead of everyone else in the house waking up. Usually I like to start about 5 or 5.30 in the morning recording a podcast episode. I record it in one broad motion. Very rarely do I pause briefly. I just record in one fell swoop like a golf swing, as my cousin Micah would say. Follow through from beginning to end, one idea connected to the next, to the next, to the next, extemporaneously. So I record in the mornings, and I use Audacity to edit the audio, normalize the audio levels, get everything below negative three, decibels. All of my peaks I want below negative three decibels. I truncate silence, try and cut down. If there are extended thoughtful moments, you don't necessarily need the full length, the full measure of those pauses. <laughs> so I truncate silence for your sake to make it more listenable. And then I publish to Anchor FM. If you're listening on some other platform, it's because my publishing on Anchor then 
pushes the content to sites like Apple and Google and Amazon and whatnot. But I will publish the actual audio today and then tomorrow morning when I first wake up, before I start recording the next episode, I will post today's audio to the WordPress site, thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. And anybody who has signed up for email alerts will get an email alert in their inbox. And if you follow me on Twitter or Facebook, you'll see it show up in your feed, maybe, possibly, if we're not being shadow banned, which I think we are. But supposing you see it show up in your feed, maybe you'll click through and you will listen. But there's a little bit of a lag time there, right? There's a little bit of a lead time. Basically, from beginning to end, the publishing of the audio to the publishing of the WordPress post, which then pushes to social media automatically, is roughly 24 hours. A little less than 24 hours, but roughly 24 hours. That's just the rhythm I've gotten into. And then what that also helps with is refreshing my memory before I record the audio for an episode. So long as I am recording one day after the next, after the next, after the next, I am writing up and editing. If I, if I had written up a episode description <clears throat> on anchor, for instance, I'm copying that over, pasting it into WordPress, and then I'm proofreading what I wrote yesterday morning and I'm editing that and I'm trying to make it more clear because it's going to show up in people's email inboxes. They're more likely to read it. It's going to show up on WordPress Reader. They're more likely to read it before they listen, maybe even instead of listening to the audio. I'm not sure. But in the process of proofreading, I'll usually modify a number of things. I might add some additional write-up, some thoughts that have occurred to me after listening to the audio. I don't listen to the audio before I publish it. I'll listen to it at some point within the next day, always before the end of the day. I will listen to my own episode, preferably while I'm doing something else, preferably while I'm working on laundry or cleaning up or what have you, driving somewhere back when I was driving to work every day. But today's write-up was yesterday's episode, of course, on the nature of what passes for good manners. And in the course of doing the write-up, it occurred to me to use the phrase pomp and circumstance. And once it occurred to me to use that phrase, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and look up pomp and circumstance. I think I remember what song, what very popular piece of orchestral music that is associated with in my mind. But I just want to make sure. And then I, in the course of trying to refresh my memory on that, came across this Wikipedia article for Pomp and Circumstance Marches. And I just found it really, really interesting, even just five minutes of research, that the title of these marches for the composer was in part inspired by a verse from Lord de Tabley's poem, The March of Glory. I found interesting in particular this phrase, like a proud music that draws men on to die. Like a proud music that draws men on to die. And thinking of that in conjunction with good manners, thinking of the whole topic of yesterday's episode where I'm talking about what it means to be polite, what are good manners, and can we know what good manners are as Christians in connection with the love chapter, so-called, 1 Corinthians 13. Can we know that there is such a thing as good manners, even if we're not always sure what good manners are in a given setting, depending on the company? Can we at least know that there is such a thing as good manners? And what's it made of? And what's it a subset of? And what is it for? What is the point of having good manners? 
in the course of yesterday's episode on the nature of what passes for good manners, it occurred to me that I came back again and again to this idea that sometimes good manners, sometimes what passes for good manners, actually can be misleading. Sometimes we can suppose that we have very good manners, but our good manners are a cover. They're a cover for doing something mean and selfish. And that is like proud music that draws men on to die. Good manners, so-called, have to be, if they are actually good manners, they have to be driven by love. They have to be sincere. I don't think, call me a rebel, call me eccentric, call me what you will, but I don't think that good manners can be insincere. I think that in order for good manners to actually be good manners, they have to be genuine. Now, what I'm not saying is that you always have to tell the absolute naked truth to everybody all the time, 100%. There is temperance needed with how honest we should be, must be, ought to be. There is temperance needed. So, for instance, I have in my mind a situation which I just became aware of this week. And I won't say the situation in too much detail, otherwise I would give away too much. And I would cause trouble as I pursue more information myself to get a clearer picture of what happened, what is happening, what may yet happen. (laughs) But let's just say I became aware of a situation in which some people have been excluding some other people. And this has been going on uh, for some time. And we just found out about it. And now there are questions of, okay, so what is the reason? What is the reason for the exclusion? And so a question has been asked of one party in particular, wanting to get at an explanation, wanting to get a a clearer picture, not wanting to come to the wrong conclusions, but also at the same time, wanting to have some peace of mind because some of the right conclusions potentially are liable to change dynamics, change relationships, change the fundamental nature of how this group of people over here engages with this group of people over there. And that, so far as I'm saying, in very vague terms, is just fine, right? I mean, almost regardless what the explanation is, just by virtue of asking the question, the dynamic will change moving forward. Depending on how you ask the question, hey, give me an explanation. I just found out about this, and we weren't invited. In fact, we weren't even told. seems like it was kind of kept a secret. And can you explain to me why? Because this thing that we weren't invited to is something that we would have been very, very much, inv- very much interested in. And we know that you know that. So, what's going on? If the answer to the question of what's going on is entirely above board, and it makes total sense, and the person being asked the question is like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I can see how that would look really, really bad. No, no, no. Don't, don't worry anything about it. Here's what actually happened. Yeah, no, 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 no. Well, then the dynamic will change in a certain direction. And actually, mutual respect, depending on how people engage, whether they're engaging respectfully and honestly and considerately, respect, mutual, 
trust, mutual, can increase all around. But on the flip side, if the question is asked wrongly in a accusatory way or in a rude way in and of itself, there's the potential, if there is nothing amiss, for feelings to be hurt and for a good opinion to be perhaps forever lost. So you want to be careful in such things. And you want to be careful to not jump to conclusions. But you have to have some conclusion, whether you jump to it or you slow walk to it. You have to come to a conclusion at some point. And I'm just thinking to myself, as this is playing out, that good manners have to be motivated by love. We have to be genuinely concerned for the well-being of the other person in order for it to count as good manners. Otherwise, it is pomp and circumstance. It's proud music that draws men on to die. It's misleading. It's perhaps even in the worst cases, the profuse kisses of an enemy. I think part of the reason for this, and I'll just be very, very honest with you. I know I can be honest with you, listener to the Geared Ashley Mullet Show, if you've been listening for any amount of time. I know that you are a thoughtful, intelligent, sophisticated, insightful type of person. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Of course, of course, of course. But it occurs to me that when good manners give a false impression of intimacy that is not reliable because it's not genuine, good manners can really set others up for feeling foolish, for looking foolish. Have you ever been in a public place, for instance, and looked through the crowd and seen someone waving? And it looks like to you, just because the angles, it looks to you like they're looking right at you. And they're saying something, they're asking something, and you think they're talking to you. Have you ever had that happen? Total stranger, maybe. You think they're talking to you. And you're trying to respond, maybe, or you're starting to respond, or you have responded, and then all of a sudden from behind you, you hear the person they were actually talking to. And you promptly stop. And if you're like me, you blush. Because, oh my goodness, of course they weren't talking to me. Why did I think they were talking to me? I don't even know them. No, 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 that wasn't for me that they were waving and smiling. It was for the person in the crowd behind me that they actually know. Ooh, I think I will try to escape into the crowd, back into anonymity once again. Have you ever had that happen? Well, it's not a pleasant feeling. Now, you might laugh at yourself. Usually, in my experience, when something like that happens, the person you mistakenly supposed was talking to you completely ignores you. If they noticed, and they probably didn't notice, but if they noticed, they pretend that they didn't notice. And you pretend that you did not <laughs> accidentally just try to answer the question they were asking the person behind you. You pretend that you didn't just point at your chest, mouthing the words, me? But of course you did, and you know that you did. When good manners almost seem designed to create scenarios like that, but also seem to not be overly concerned with the potential for embarrassment on the part of the other person who supposes a greater intimacy than is really felt, I say 
Those are not good manners at all. Those are actually very bad manners. I think it would be better to be thought a fool and keep silent. Or, as the proverb says, even a fool when he is silent is esteemed wise. And in this context, I don't think that being silent is just you not saying things. I think being silent is a kind of quiet stillness of spirit, wherein we're not just flailing about communicating things carelessly. We're being very intentional and not trying to give people the wrong impression about our intentions. Just take pomp and circumstance marches, for example. And I'll play a little selection for you here. In case you're not as familiar, I think you'll recognize this tune. And then we'll talk a little bit more about it. Take a listen. That's the one. You get the idea. (laughs) That is also known as the graduation walking march. So, funny thing. (laughs) You know, it's a, a funny deal, too. I think part of my perspective, if I can just talk a little bit more about this question of manners... Part of my perspective on manners comes from having a father who grew up all over the country, my dad's side of the family, Montana native, but my dad growing up, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, lived in Montana and then Kansas and Heston. Kansas, more specifically, and then down in Florida, and then back to Montana, went to college in Ohio, where he met my mom. My mom, meanwhile, she was from Florida, met my dad in Ohio, and then they got married and moved back to Montana, where I was born. And then for my part, I grew up mostly in Montana, Or I should say, actually, 50-50. 10 years old, we moved to Ohio. And then from 10 on until 25, living in Ohio, meeting my wife there. Apparently, Ohio is where you find a wife if you're from Montana, I guess. But then coming back to Montana at the age of 25, I got to work in the oil and gas industry but I also reconnected with my dad's extended family. And there was this odd kind of melting pot of sorts, or maybe salad, if you will, of influences all at the same time as I'm educating myself on the oil and gas industry that I have worked in for the past 10 years. As I'm listening to audiobooks and podcasts and conservative talk radio and the news, as I'm interacting with my dad's extended family in Bloomfield, Montana, conservative farming, ranching, mostly farming, dryland farming, Mennonite roots, community, as I'm interacting with oil and gas workers in North Dakota and Montana and all over the Rockies then, up into Canada, down into Texas, as I'm 
rubbing shoulders with men who have come from all over the country, sometimes all over the world, to work in the oil and gas industry. Now moving my family to Colorado three years ago, two and a half, I suppose, I'm rounding up, but two plus years ago, I have seen a great many different sensibilities, shall we say. I have seen and heard a lot of differing views on what passes for good manners. And it runs the gamut from very proper manners, very respectable white-collar manners, to deep south, yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir, please and thank you, bless your heart, manners, to the more point-blank, let's always open with some commentary on the weather type manners in western North Dakota. You can't talk about the scenery, so you're going to have to talk about the weather. (laughs) There's this interesting question in my mind, coming from southern Ohio, a very purple state, where you have red and blue, and nobody's, in my experience, they're extremely one or the other, because they're surrounded by enough people who are going to disagree with them. Everybody kind of moderates their political views. That's why Ohio can serve as a swing state. Eastern Montana, very rugged individualism, but then again, not not quite just as individualistic as you might expect. Also, very communitarian. There's a wildfire, there's a blizzard, there's a flood... There's a drought. Somebody just broke their leg or died unexpectedly. And now the harvest needs to be taken care of. And so to get the family through, all of the farmers around are going to lend a hand. Hey, so-and-so just had some trouble. We're all going to rally around them and help them out. There's... The corporate manner, there's the farming and ranching manner, there is the purple state manner, there's the deep red state or deep red half of the state manner, there's the conservative Christian manner, there's the unchurched vagabond manner. And what I find as I I'm looking at all these different manners and sensibilities is that good manners have to do with communication. What are we communicating? Are we communicating truth? Are we telling the truth? Now, again, as I said earlier in this episode, you can't be totally honest. And even just from the scriptures, I mean, we know that from common sense, but we also know it from the scriptures. You can't be totally honest with everybody at all times about everything. Jesus says, you don't cast your pearls before swine, for instance. You don't give to dogs what is holy. And so if I'm working with some really rough around the edges guys that don't have two spits of care, about propriety. In fact, they think it's a big joke that anybody would be well-mannered, polite. Well, then maybe I'm going to spare them my good manners. If I'm dealing with corporate types who will very politely, with proper diction and no profanity, tell you that they're closing your office, but you can have a job an hour away, even though you bought a house here at their request because they did the math and they can save money that way. They might have very good manners, but are you going to waste time with a lot of pleasantries? Are you going to get into all of the ways that this isn't quite fair? It's not quite kind. It's not quite 
loyal of them to have cut you loose like that. We've been in church situations in eastern Montana in particular in which a well-established farmer and rancher with a strong personality, we'll just call it that, or a stubborn pride, more truly, decides that he doesn't like the cut of your jib. Who do you think you are coming in here and saying whatever you please? It's not how this goes. You know how hard he's worked to have everybody jump when he says how high or ask how high when he says jump? This is going to go the way he wants it to go. Or else, maybe just maybe you're not going to get a good morning back in Sunday school or before the regular service starts. Is that good manners? No, indeed. But also, too, are you completely 100% honest with everyone who is inconsiderate, rude, unpleasant, selfish, either actively or passively? Are you going to be completely honest? If you are, where will that get you? You have to count costs. And I think for me personally, I'll just level with you. As somebody who was just thinking about this yesterday after I recorded on the nature of what passes for good manners, I write a book on homeschooling. And I think to myself about what my big, hairy, audacious goal is, my BHAG is in writing that book, what would the result be if I could have that book do precisely what I want it to? And my goal would be that there is a revolution in how we educate our children. Because I think education is very important. Very, very important. There would be a revolution in how we educate our children. We have a duty before God to educate our children well. If my book on homeschooling were totally successful, as many American parents as possible, as could, would homeschool their children. They would not just teach them reading and writing and math, and science, and history, and civics, and music. They would also teach them how to be good Christians. They would also teach them how to be kind to one another, how to be upstanding citizens, how to be good fathers and mothers, and good husbands and wives. This is also part of why in the course of writing, and this is why we homeschool, it occurred to me, I really need to write more on the chicken and egg question of marriage. Because you kind of need to deal with the need for intact families, intact homes. Hey, we need to be building into our marriages in a way that is healthy and God-honoring and true to form. Children need a mom and a dad in the home, and they need a dad who is working hard to provide for the family, managing the money, making the money, investing the money, making ends meet in order for the mom to be able to homeschool. And I think that is the way God intended it. Not just that the mom alone gives instruction. Of course the father needs to be giving instruction. Absolutely. Totally. But primary caregiver. If it's going to be one or the other, the man should be the one to go out and bring home the bacon. So I'm working on, and this is why we got married. I'll be working on chapter five this week. And as I think about what are my goals for that book, I think my big, hairy, audacious goal is that there would be a revolution in the way that we approach marriage, the way we think about marriage. 
those of us who don't get married, but we do, like busy bees, fly from one flower to the next, to the next, to the next. No. Get married. Pick one. Settle down. Commit to her. Love her. Provide for her. Protect her. Have some children with her. Raise a family with her. Raise godly offspring with her. We need to reform our approach to marriage. That is a big, hairy, audacious goal indeed. Those who in quarrels interpose often get a bloody nose, as the quote goes. But then, another book that needs to be written is, and this is why we had children, because we need to reform the way we think about having children. We need to reform our attitude about when we have children, how many children we have, how we raise those children, what the whole point of having children is and should be. And only when we do that will we get a handle on our demographic problems, our cultural rot, the trouble with education, broken homes. Only then will we be ready, many of us, most of us, to read. And this is why we homeschool. But that too, that's a big hairy, audacious goal. That is ambitious, and I know that. And then I think, okay, I write those books, and what will the end be? Maybe if I could just snap my fingers like I'm wearing the Infinity Gauntlet from the Marvel Comics movies. If I only wrote those books, and each of them only accomplished their primary objective... What we would find is that most of the adults in America would get married and have children and homeschool their children. But would that be enough? To my way of thinking, as a Christian, considering the scriptures, considering the whole counsel of God, no, that would not be enough. What's needed also is another book. This is why we go to church. Fewer and fewer adults go to church. Why is that? And those who do go to church, what is it that they're going to? And why are they there? And what are they getting out of it? And what are they putting into it? Maybe more importantly, why are they there? And why are the majority of their neighbors not there? And what do we do about that unless we reform our attitude about church? Unless we reform our attitude about a local community of believers loving God, loving one another, serving God, serving one another, encouraging one another, fellowshipping with one another, building one another up. So I don't know that I will write all of these books. I hope to. I'm considering writing them concurrently, actually, after yesterday. The idea was thrown out there. You know, what I could do is I could outline the rest of the books, the rest of the books that I have in view to write for this series, outline them all, and then if at a particular time, I'm just not feeling like writing a chapter on marriage right now. Actually, I've got some things I want to say about having children. Well, then maybe I write a chapter for that book. And maybe sometimes I'm not feeling like writing a chapter on marriage or a chapter on having children. So maybe I write a chapter of, and this is why we go to church. And maybe I just do that and write the next three books all at the same time. I don't know. I might be spreading myself too thin, but we'll see. I'm playing around with it. But I do think that that's a big question in my mind is, so I'm writing these books. How much do I challenge the reader to reform their attitude, reform their thinking about 
marriage, having children, going to church, how much do I challenge them? How honestly and directly and bluntly can I contradict their sacred assumptions? And if I contradict those assumptions, and if I leave them no escape route, as I logically bombard one position after another, reducing to rubble the fortresses and strongholds of the enemy, as I see it, will I be considered rude for doing so? Is that bad manners? So also, if I do that in real life, okay, I'm going to write this book. If I start actually, oh, I don't know, talking with people around me, like these things are true, like I believe them, will that be considered good manners or will that be considered bad manners? Will that offend people? And if I start talking like I believe these things and saying them very bluntly, very matter-of-factly, in a way that leaves no escape route for people who still love their sacred assumptions, will they forgive me for it? Or will they exclude me? Will they maybe even exclude my family? So there's definitely a question in my mind in terms of long haul, in terms of how honest do you be? How honest can you afford to be? Is it better to smile, be pleasant, but by and large, keep your views to yourself until you have a chance to deliver them in one huge package, one giant nuclear bomb worth of content instead of little sentences here and there, little comments, passing comments. But then, on the other hand, it's not really a good plan long-term, I don't think, for health, generally speaking, to say, well, I'm just going to shut myself up in my house and interact with the world only through books. That's not really a good idea. So I suppose it's one of those deals where you have to navigate it on a case-by-case -case basis. How honest can you be with people? How honest can you afford to not be? I think that it's something to puzzle out, but it's also a deal where you really have to question the nature of the different relationships in your life. I think that should be a good test for who you're close with and who you're not close with. If being honest with somebody causes them to just withdraw without explanation, well then, there's your sign. Apparently, that's not somebody to be close with. But instead of just saying, well, no, I'm not going to be close with anybody or I'm not going to have a relationship with anybody, I think what you do is you say, I'm going to be selective. That person might not be somebody I can be totally honest with, but I'll find someone else to be totally honest with. And then for the rest, I don't believe that good manners is pretending to have more friendliness than is genuine. I don't think that's good manners. I don't think good manners is pretending to be closer than you really are. I don't think good manners is pretending at a warmth. I think good manners is you're pleasant. Primum not notier, as the Latin goes. First do no harm. Good manners is first do no harm. If I'm walking through a crowd of strangers, I don't need, nor can I really in actuality, walk up to each and every single one of them and serve them all simultaneously, except possibly by minding my own business, by tending to the matters of my house. In that way, I can serve every one of them. And this is why we homeschool. 
And this is why we got married. And this is why we had children. And this is why we go to church. You might not be able to straighten everybody out. But you'll get as close as you possibly can by straightening yourself out. Going back to the situation that I was alluding to earlier. We find that it appears as though we were excluded from something that we would have very much liked to have been a part of, which we thought we were a part of, but apparently that concluded and something else started up that we were not invited to. And it is what it is. We obviously were not the only ones not invited. And so I think what we're going to do, instead of stewing about it, is we're going to just be the change we want to see in the world. We're going to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Hey, this thing was really beneficial. It stopped happening, but then it started up over there without us. So maybe what we'll do is we'll just start it back up again, but more on our terms this time. And maybe what we'll do is we will invite others who feel similarly, just as we would want to be invited. We'll invite them just like we would want to be invited. And in that way, maybe we don't straighten out everyone, but maybe we do as much good for all parties concerned by straightening ourselves out. Maybe at a certain point, just the mere example, without necessarily having to write a book about it, although you know that I will learn from it, incorporate the lessons learned into my writing, but maybe just sometimes the study in contrasts is how you make your argument. We're not going to be crushed by that. We're not going to be thrown off by this. We're not going to be discouraged for long or allow ourselves to persist in feeling discouraged by this other thing perpetually. No, no. Time to move on. I suppose, <laughs> as Midwesterners like to say, well, I suppose I should probably get going. can't tell you how many chance meetings at the grocery store or at the county fair or in the office or at church or in the community, people stopping in, going out for breakfast. I can't tell you how many encounters with Midwesterners have concluded with, well, I suppose. <laughs> and sometimes that's just what you have to do, right? Sometimes that's what you have to do when there's a setback. Stand up, brush the dust off, shrug, and say, well, I suppose I should probably get going. Don't have to do it alone, though. The first thing God ever said was not good in all of creation was that the man should be alone. The primary building block of civilization is marriage. And then from there, what the one God was seeking in marriage was godly offspring. So be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then lo and behold, with a wife, with children, you could use more community than just that. They could use more community than just that. And so you find a coalition of the willing. And if you're wise, you build that coalition of the willing around faith in the Most High God. And that's why we go to church. And that's why we get married. That's why we have children. I wrote the last chapter first in a certain sense in writing, and this is why we homeschool. I'll tell you, a big part of why we homeschool is because we want our children to learn to relate to one another and themselves and God and others 
in a way that is more functional, actually surprisingly more inclusive in all the right ways towards the people around them, exclusive in all the right ways, but inclusive in all the right ways so that they can, in turn, love God well and love their neighbor as they love themselves and do well. So, in conclusion, I think that we should be as honest as possible with one another. But I think we should also consider where people are at and whether they can bear it, whether they can bear the honesty. Sometimes people are having a bad day. Sometimes they're having a bad season. Sometimes you can make that bad day and that bad season better by being honest with them. Sometimes you need to be sparse on the details and just say, hey, this is what it is. Just want to let you know. Sometimes all you can do is just quietly go about your own business. As Thessalonians says, aspire to live quiet lives, working with your hands, minding your own business, pursuing peace, seeking peace and pursuing it, but real peace, not a phony peace, but peace predicated on truth and beauty and goodness, according to God. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I'm going to get going. I suppose, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.